This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. The latest edition of Time magazine putting this moment into perspective. Quote, as protests over police racism and racial inequality have spread to more than 140 U.S. cities in the week since the death of George Floyd, the world has been watching. Demonstrators have marched through streets or gathered at U.S. embassies in Canada, Great Britain, Germany, and beyond, both to express solidarity with American protesters and to highlight systemic inequalities at home. The world's media is paying attention to front pages and editorials from France to Mexico to China, all discussing Floyd's death, the violent repression of protesters by law enforcement, and the divisive response by the protests mounted by President Donald Trump. The full story is available at time.com. And in just a moment, we will talk to Camille Busset. She's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution with an expertise in race relations and economic issues. But first, a reminder of how this moment began. In the early evening hours of May 25th in Minneapolis, as four police officers arrested George Floyd over a misdemeanor, then held him on the ground with a knee, which led to his death. Bro, with your feet on his neck, man, you get off the ground. His nose is bleeding. Like, yeah, come that's, on now. That's wrong right there with his feet on his neck. Look at his nose. You can see your knee on his neck. Yeah, he got your feet right on his neck, yeah, I cannot breathe. You just a grown. You're oh, a tough, you're a tough guy. You're a tough guy, huh? I say you're a tough guy. He's not even resisting the rest, bro. His whole nose is on fire with him. Bro, why you just sitting there? He ain't doing nothing. He's putting him in the car. How long y'all gotta hold him down? Why don't you drugs, kids? It ain't about drugs, bro. You know that's bogus right now, bro. You know it's bogus. You can't even look at me like a man because you a bum, bro. He's not even resisting arrest right now, bro. His nose is bleeding. You f***ing stopping his breathing right now, bro. You think that's cool? Get off of his neck. Are you serious? Bro, are you serious? And you gonna keep your you gonna keep you gonna keep your your thing on his neck? Look at him. That video and audio produced by the Washington Post. Camille Busset, as you listen to that once again, what goes through your mind? Um, it's extremely hard to listen to it, and um, it's, uh, you know, I just have a lot of anguish um, as I'm witnessing basically the suffocation of, of George Floyd and the, the reaction of the, of the crowd who are trying so desperately to tell the police officer that this is a human being and, um, and the police officer not, not acknowledging that humanity. It's just, it's, I mean, it make, makes me very distraught. Um, and, and apoplectic as well. You wrote a piece, by the way, which is available at brookings.edu, a message to state leaders, to governors, to community leaders, to mayors on how to tackle racism, which is really one of the underlying issues in all of this. So what are your recommendations? Well, um, you know, the reason I wanted to highlight some recommendations is that 
we're kind of in uncharted territory in the sense that um, we have to remake a lot of American life, largely because of COVID, um, but also now because of the renewed emphasis on racial disparities. And so uh, mayors and governors are really going to have to, um, you know, face the music, so to speak, and, and have some concrete proposals. So what I wanted to do was at least provide a framework for that. So my uh, recommendations are, first of all, that I think we all have to do the hard work of acknowledging racism. It's not something we have done in this country, um, and when it has been done, it's really ad hoc uh, and certainly hasn't been sustained. And uh, we need to do that. We need to do that in a really uh, formal and comprehensive way in every locality. So I think it's worth it for us to look at um, South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, as a potential model for that. Doing that kind of acknowledging also creates greater space for other policies, policies that will be uh, targeted and policies that will be expensive because, you know, if you have neglected communities for hundreds of years, it's going to be expensive to get them to a place where they can thrive. So the other recommendations are uh, to establish uh, equity goals um, and equity goals that can be accomplished in the two to four year time frame um, that are uh, put together, uh, organized and tracked by an equity task force at whatever level, local level or state level, um, and that hold people accountable to those goals. And the reason I um, wanted to identify a time frame is that, you know, there are, there's time, there are several types of time. There's time in lifetime and uh, there's also political time and uh, mayors and governors work in political time and so do advocates. And so we have to match the timing um, of achievements with political time. So the third recommendation uh, is that uh, local leaders and state leaders really marshal funding for equity measures, which are largely going to be, you know, comprehensive and therefore expensive. Uh, so they need to do a couple of things right now, um, which is to think strategically about how to use federal COVID-19 uh, stimulus money. And they also need to think about a variety of uh, federal waivers that are currently available and use those creatively to focus on equity goals. Um, and they also need to take uh, pioneering steps to really develop equity bonds that they can, um, they can launch onto the muni market. So I think there are a number of things they can do in the funding uh, arena. Uh, the fourth uh, area that I think is really important for them to focus on and to step up on is um, really on innovation. And that means uh, really um, un, you know, uh, understanding and interrogating the foundation of some of the systems of repression that exist. So the criminal justice system, policing, those are systems of repression. And those are based on a set of underlying values and foundational assumptions about who's committing crimes and what we should do about them uh, and how they are integrated and those people are integrated into society. And so those assumptions need to be questioned and uh, need to be revised and the systems that are based on those assumptions need to be either um, modified or eliminated. And I give an example of the juvenile justice system, which uh, was originally based on an understanding that people are sort of born with a certain personality and set of behaviors, and that that is really in, unmutable. And now we know that um, 
young people's brains are developing up until they're 25. And so uh, with that understanding of brain development, I think it's important for us to even to think about, do we even need a juvenile justice system at all? And so mayors and governors need to really think deeply about those kinds of uh, systems of oppression. Last, measuring equity impacts. And there you really just need to keep your, your feet um, on the pedal and make sure that the measurements are there and that they are meeting goals. What is striking as you offer these assessments is that we often have to relearn the lessons of the past from the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, the marches that we saw in places like Selma, Alabama, to Rodney King in Los Angeles in the early 1990s. And so I want you to listen to what President Lyndon Johnson told the country in August of 1967, as demonstrations were ensuing across the country, especially in cities like Detroit. My fellow Americans, we have endured a week such as no nation should live through, a time of violence and tragedy. For a few minutes tonight, I want to talk about that tragedy, and I want to talk about the deeper questions that it raises for us all. There is no American right to loot stores or to burn buildings or to fire rifles from the rooftops. That is crime, and crime must be dealt with forcefully and swiftly and certainly under law. Innocent people, Negro and white, have been killed. Damage to property owned by Negroes and white is calamitous. Worst of all, fear and bitterness which have been loosed will take long months to erase. The apostles of violence with their ugly drumbeat of hatred must know that they are now heading for ruin and disaster. That from President Lyndon Johnson in the summer of 1967 and Camille Bousset more than 50 years later, we are still dealing with similar or exactly the same problems? We are. uh, And um, I think this is the fear of, you know, anybody who really wants to make progress in the space is that uh, we just keep going over the same ground. And um, I think part of that has to do with uh, the nature of politics, which is, which is really focused on the ephemeral in some ways. Um, And, uh, you know, it's sort of the next shiny object, and we, we focus on that. But I think beyond that, um, there really hasn't been an appreciation of how different the worlds are that black and brown people occupy in this country and that, you know, a lot of the majority of white people occupy in this country. Really, really different. Um, we have a, a very significant racial wealth gap in this country that has actually grown over time uh, where whites on average, white households on average, earn 10 times more than uh, or have 10 times more um, wealth than black households. That has been consistent for decades. Um, And there are many reasons for that. Most importantly, access to jobs and particularly good jobs and good jobs with benefits, in addition to a number of other uh, types of conventions, uh, regulations, and legislation which have literally prevented black people from building assets. So uh, I think that, you know, as a nation, we have just not understood the, the 
experiences are really, really different. And so um, what I'm hoping will come out of this moment is particularly because of the, the, you know, extenuating circumstances around COVID where we really do have to redo some things is that we will take this opportunity to redo this particular uh, set of experiences in the United States where we really have not um, spent a lot of time or investment in making sure that black and brown communities have access to the same opportunities, um, have share the same sense of well-being and safety and security, um, and have the same opportunities to thrive as their white neighbors. But will this be different? So, you know, uh, I'm actually I'm of two minds on that. I think uh, at one level, I feel like it, you know, we could just go back and, and um, revisit the same cycle. On the other hand, I'm, I am feeling hopeful that there will be some changes. One, because I'm starting to see uh, that a lot of politicians um, at the state and local level um, are either people of color or people who have who really do understand um, that this the, it's urgent to fix these problems. And I think that was not true in 1967. I mean, you had people who understood it, but they were not necessarily in positions of power uh, at the local level, which is where a lot of these uh, kinds of changes are going to have to happen. So I'm I am hopeful from that perspective. I mean, when you look at the governor of um, Minnesota. Uh, and the way in which he has been handling um, this whole set of events from the murder all the way to the um, protest, I think there's a level of sensitivity and understanding there that uh, I don't think was comparable in 1967. Also in 1967, these comments by Dr. Martin Luther King. It was a speech to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which took place in Atlanta the summer of 67. Confess, my friends, that the road ahead will not always be smooth. There will still be rocky places of frustration and meandering points of bewilderment. There will be inevitable setbacks here and there. There will be those moments when the buoyancy of hope will be transformed into the fatigue of despair. Our dreams will sometime be shattered and our ethereal hopes blasted. We may again with tear-drenched eyes have to stand before the beard of some courageous civil rights worker whose life will be snuffed out by the dastardly acts of bloodthirsty mobs. That from Dr. Martin Luther King, August of 1967. Camille said, I'm wondering if the death of George Floyd is going to be a real turning point, a pivotal moment in our country's history. You know, I uh, I want to think that it will be, um, but there are a couple of caveats around that. Uh, and thank you for playing that, that tape of, of Dr. King. You know, Dr. King was an incredible unifier. And um, I think one of the things that has really been true was really true during the civil rights movement uh, with Dr. when Dr. King was alive and certainly even after was that we had true leadership uh, around uh, civil rights and human rights. And that leadership was um, acknowledged and highly regarded globally. 
we do not have that same level of leadership uh, now, and um, that's for a variety of different reasons. We, we have a more polarized uh, polity. Um, we have uh, a lack of leadership uh, at the in the White House uh, at this level, and so I do think uh, that we are now relying very heavily on mayors and governors uh, to really take the mantle of change on. And so to the extent that they are actually willing to put their political careers on the line, because this will be hard, it will be difficult, and it will be contentious, uh, then we can make progress. But many politicians, particularly uh, state-level and, uh, you know, local and state-level politicians, really have larger aspirations and often are not willing to put their political careers on the line. And so I do think that there are going to be, um, as very much as there were, you know, during Dr. King's time, even prior to that, you know, after the 1921 um, racial massacre in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, going all the way through to the civil rights era, there have always been some progress and then some steps backward. And I think we were going to see that again. But I do think with young people pushing things, um, with greater uh, awareness and sensitivity among governors and uh, local politicians, we may be able to push the ball a little further uh, than uh, before we slide back uh, to some other um, kind of lesser stage. Going back to your essay at brookings.edu, you write about racism-free equity. What is that? So that really is, um, you know, focusing on uh, making sure that everyone um, is in a position to thrive uh, and to take advantage of opportunities and um, to do it in such a way that the uh, new structures that are built, the new programs that are built really are anti-racist. So they they do not uh, continue to um, re-inculcate racist values. So I'll, I'll just give you an example. Um, so we know that the justice system um, is disproportionately peopled uh, with black and brown, usually men, but, but black and brown community members. And so um, when those black and brown members are in a jail, um, they typically, which is local, they typically will have to make phone calls to their families. And local um, governments actually charge an exorbitant amount of money uh, for those phone calls. And those phone calls have to be paid for by the families of the people who are being held in jail. And so the expenses of being held in jail fall very, very heavily uh, on people of color. And so that is a, uh, a set of policies and um uh, practices that is in effect racist. And so when I talk, talk about racist, you know, racism-free equity, we're talking about not only constructing uh, new programs that provide for opportunities and access uh, and really invest in communities and people, but we're also talking about looking at existing policies and practices and uh, evaluating them against uh, an equity scorecard and eliminating the ones that are shown to be racist. And that really seemed to be the message of former President Barack Obama. He recently participated in a virtual town hall meeting. Here's a portion. 
in some ways as tragic as these past few weeks have been, as difficult and scary and uncertain as they've been, uh, they've also been an incredible opportunity for people to be uh, awakened to some of these underlying trends. And they offer an opportunity for us to all work together to tackle them. And so will this moment, will this opportunity uh, bend the arc of change and justice in our country? Well, you know, I, I, um, I always am very buoyed by the, the kind of optimism of President Obama. I'm an optimist myself, uh, and I do um, take current, uh, comfort. I do take comfort and encouragement from seeing the multicultural and very diverse coalition of people who have shown up for protests around the country. That is a great building block. That is a great starting point. Uh, but what we really need to do after this period, you know, after the tear of the gas clears, uh, after the memorial services for George Floyd, and even after the trials, is we really need to have a set of concrete steps that we are going to be taking in places where people actually live uh, that will um, create uh, and support a level of well-being that is usually enjoyed only by uh, middle-class whites. And so those we need some very, very concrete steps. So, so I'm, I'm going to give you an example. You know, one of the things that we found uh, during COVID-19, as many people know, is that um, the uh, effects of COVID-19 fell um, disproportionately on black and brown communities. And in some places, you know, blacks were two to three times more likely to contract the disease and two to three times more likely to die from the disease, largely because of uh, decades and centuries of neglect in the healthcare system and otherwise. So as we're thinking about how we dig out of COVID-19, you know, it becomes really important for us to think about access to the Internet. This seems really, really basic, but access to the Internet is what access to electricity was in, you know, the 20th century. Um, and everyone should have access to the Internet. And that should be, you know, at no cost, particularly for people who cannot pay for the Internet. But we need to have that. Why? because we need to develop telehealth, deliver telehealth, and that's going to be important to these communities that were devastated by COVID-19. And we're going to have to have access to the Internet for educational advancement. Um, it's no secret that, uh, you know, people who are uh, of lesser means and also brown, black communities have not had consistent access to the Internet. The inter there are a lot of Internet deserts, and that's true in rural communities as well. And so uh, just focusing on how do you pay for Internet access, broadband access throughout, um, you know, every single household, uh, even that alone would be a very important step forward in starting to try to decrease the inequities that have been revealed both by COVID-19 and um, by the murder of George Floyd. And I'm reminded what we have heard so often that uh, the darkest storms often result in the brightest rainbow. So will this result in a rainbow? Will this moment change for better days ahead? You know, I, I, as I, you know, I reflect on that, you know, there are many, many opportunities for us 
to make better judgments than we might have made in 1967, that we might have made um, during the beating of Rodney King. And that opportunity for better judgment um, comes uh, comes about because we have a society which is uh, becoming increasingly brown and black, that is showing up in leadership positions, um, and that is uh, in a position to really make demand at the ballot box. And so I do think that the timing of the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the, you know, timing of this particular set of murders of um, unarmed black men, happens to coincide with a moment when we are all evaluating uh, leadership and political leadership in this country. And so we have an opportunity in November to change that leadership, and we have an opportunity to select somebody who is going to be more sensitive and more attentive to issues of racism. And uh, we all have, I think, a responsibility, those of us who want to make those changes, to ensure that the next election delivers leadership across the House, um, the Senate, and in the White House that will demand change from the status quo, particularly when it comes to policing, to income inequities, to health disparities, to educational disparities, and to the lack of acknowledgement of the humanity of brown and black uh, neighbors and community members. The perspective of Camille Busset. She is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution here in Washington, D.C. And again, her essay is available at brookings.edu. Thanks for joining us on C-SPAN's The Weekly. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the web at cspan.org slash podcast. Be sure to rate and review us and follow us on Twitter at C-SPAN Radio. I'm Steve Scully in Washington.